Good morning, everyone. My name is Tim Porter, senior pastor at Faith Community. It's good to be together in the room. Happy Easter, everyone. Christ is risen. Awesome. Online, happy Easter and Christ is risen. Oh, wait, I was listening for them. So uh, we got to get some audio feedback. No, uh, good to be together here this morning. Um, you know, so every week at Faith Community, if you're new to Faith Community, just you know, every week we sing and celebrate Jesus' death and his resurrection together. But one time a year uh, with the Christian calendar, we set aside a weekend where we really focus and we really dive into Jesus being raised from the dead. And that's what we're doing here this morning. And sometimes, if you've been around faith community for some time, uh, sometimes we go back to the historical records, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, uh, the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection, and we, and we talk about what happened, what Jesus did. This year, we're doing something a little bit different. We're talking about if Jesus, if Jesus has been raised from the dead, which we announce every week and we seek to live by, if he has been risen from the dead, what does that mean for us right here, right now, when we walk out the doors? That's what we want to focus on today. And as a way into that discussion, a way into that truth, I want to ask you just a bit of a rhetorical question. Again, it's a rhetorical question. You don't need to answer out loud, especially if you're sitting next to your spouse. You don't need to answer for them. Here's the question. I'm going to start a little abstract, and then we're going to work our way into a little bit detail. How do you imagine your life? What kind of story are you telling about your life? Now, we don't tend to think about that a lot. And the question might seem a little weird right now. Like, what do you mean? Like, a story about my life? I don't know. I live in Hudson, Wisconsin, blah, 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 you know? Let me give you a few examples. Forrest Gump. Life is like a box of chocolate. Oh, you never know you're going to get. You're old like I am. Okay. You've seen that movie. Yeah, life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Maybe that's how you view your life. You just never know what you're going to get, but it's a box of chocolates. You never know what tomorrow's going to bring. Maybe you view your life or you're telling your story of your life as a, as a bit of a, a conquest or a competition. You need to beat the other people around you. You need to prove yourself. Maybe it's a game. Life is a game. And the person who dies with the... Oh, you've seen that bumper sticker too. Whoever dies with the most toys wins, right? Life is a party. See, it's important because we all are doing this. We're all telling some kind of story about our life because we're trying to make sense of both the joys in life but also the hardships in life. What do they mean? What do the hardships mean? Now, the letter that we're looking at today, the piece of scripture we're looking at today is written by a man who was, he was writing to a group of followers of Jesus who were enduring the brutalities, the, the brutalities of life, the brutalities, sorry, the brutalities of life. They were suffering significant hardships, significant hardships, and he was writing to encourage them with the truth of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead because they were ready to give up. Some of them were. And quit moving forward and give up on God. 
And so he gave them a metaphor for understanding their lives. We've already heard the metaphor described in the video right before this teaching time. It's the metaphor is that life is a race. Verse 1 of chapter 2, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Those of you who've been around faith community for a long time, you know that we use this phrase, gospel-inspired life. To live a gospel-inspired life is to run a race that God sets before us with endurance. A race. Now, this isn't simply a 40-yard dash. That's not what the race is. It's not a 40-yard dash. It's a marathon. And in fact, the word that's used here, the Greek word that's used to describe the race is agona. We get the English word agony from it. What a great way of talking about a marathon. Agony. One foot in front of the other. Agony. But that's what he tells us our life is like. From our first breath until our last breath, we are running a race. Do you view your life that way? It's what God wants you to view your life like. There's a start line, there's a finish line. And God is deeply committed to helping us finish well. And to help us finish well, in this passage we're going to look at, he gives us three things. He gives us a cheering section. He promises us a prize. And he supplies for us a champion. Now we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 through 12. It's found on page 1008 in the Bibles in front of you. If you'd like to use one of those, you can use a Bible app or it'll also be on the screens above me or right in front of you online. He gives us a cheering section, a prize, and a champion. Now, if you're new to faith community, one of the things that we're going to do is I'm going to read this passage of Scripture and then right at the end, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord, and then we're all going to say together, it'll be on the screens, thanks be to God. Okay. Verse 32. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon or Barak or Samson or Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, they obtained promises, they stopped the mouths of lions, they quenched the power of fire, they escaped the edge of the sword, they were made strong out of weakness, they became mighty in war and put foreign armies to flight, and women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run 
with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, I have not yet run a marathon in my life, and I don't necessarily intend to, but who knows what happens in the next decade, I don't know. But I have run um, a 10-mile race multiple times. I love to run what's called the Monster Dash, which is um, a run in St. Paul. It's a 10-mile run for me in St. Paul right around Halloween. Everybody else dresses up in these really funny or scary costumes and runs the race. I dress up as a runner uh, to pretend like I'm running the race uh, because I tend to, I am a terribly slow runner, terribly slow runner. Uh, I sort of go with the approach of the tortoise and the hare. I'm the tortoise and I still have not beat any of the hares that I run with. But the first year that I ran this race, I remember, I remember it was just such a huge accomplishment for me personally because I'd never run 10 miles straight without stopping before in my whole entire life. And even as I was training for the race, when I got to mile eight, I'm like, this is the longest that I've ever run in my life. And God, why am I doing this? This is the dumbest thing I've ever done in my life. But anyway... Now, we, I know that we've got ultra marathoners here, and we've got many people who've run Boston marathons here, or we've got some people that run Boston marathons here, and so I'm not a runner, but I do know what it's like to run a long distance without stopping. And typically, there's this spot in a race where it's all a mind game. Your body wants to give up, and your mind is telling you, give up. This is dumb. Why are you doing this? And you have to battle that whole time. Just keep going, just keep going, just keep going. Some runners will say it's like, uh, like right around mile 18, right around there where it starts to kick in. For me, if they're running a marathon, for me it was, it was around mile 7 when I ran my first race. But because I run with fast people, they went ahead of me. Even though we started in the same spot, they went far ahead of me. And I remember in mile seven, I'm just like, okay, why am I doing this? And your body wants to shut down. The cheering sections are sort of gone. It's not as exciting as it was. It's just grueling it out. You're going up some hills. But then you start to see the finish line. And that gives you some hope. It's like, oh, I'm almost there. But it's interesting that when you see the finish line, it's like, oh, well, I could stop now. And I sort of made it. But then my friends who went ahead of me, as I'm getting closer to the finish line, they stopped and they waited for me to finish. And they turned around, and they're like, Porter, run! Porter, run! And as this amazing thing happened, you've probably experienced it too, it's actually started to run faster. As I approached the finish line, I was able to get some kind of energy, some kind of adrenaline that was able to push me through. Why? Because there are people cheering me on. And God has done something amazing, and I don't even know fully how this works itself out, and it's going to sound a little bit weird when I tell you about it, is that God has supplied for you and me in the race that he set before us a cheering section. It's described right here in verse 1. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. A great cloud of witnesses. Cloud imagery was used to describe great crowds of people. And what the author wants us to envision, because this is how God has set it up in somehow in some way, is that you and I are running a race and we're to envision our lives as running a race in the middle of an ancient Greek amphitheater with all kinds of rows stacked up 
And that, that amphitheater is filled with people that are watching you and me run. And they've gone before us and they're watching us. They've already persevered. They've already endured. They've already made their way through. They've crossed the finish line. They're waiting for Jesus to return. And they are watching you and me run. They see us in some way, the people that have gone before us and died. Who are these people? Specifically, it's all of chapter 11 that we'll come back to later on in this year. But even more focusedly, it's the people described in verses 32 through 40 of chapter 11. Witnesses who've gone before us. Let me read just a little bit of the description of these witnesses. What more shall I say? For time would fail me uh, to tell of Gideon. So in other words, there's more people that the author says that he could tell us about. And he already has in all of chapter 11. For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, of Jephthah, of David, Samuel, the prophets. Look what they did. They, through faith, they conquered kingdoms. They enforced justice. They obtained promises. They stopped the mouths of lions. They quenched the power of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. They were made strong out of weakness became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, and women even received back their dead by resurrection. These are triumphant heroes. Now what the author is trying to get us to do is that you and I, we all live our lives trying to please some group of people. If you don't think you're doing that, you're deluding yourself. All of us want to please or we're all trying to um, live up to the standards of some group of people around us. Might be your parents, might be co-workers, might be somebody. What the author wants us to do is say, live your life in light of this group of people. They're triumphant in their faith. Now this is an important list of people. Because if you look at this list, it's all about people who faced insurmountable circumstances, impossible circumstances, and they trusted God despite what was going on around them, and they came out the other side victorious and unscathed. Think about this. One of the persons mentioned here is that they, they shut the mouths of lions. Who's that? A guy named Daniel. He was told to forsake the Lord and bow down to some other God. Daniel says, no. So, well, we're going to throw you in the lion's den. Okay. I'd rather die than give myself to a different God that isn't true. He's thrown into the lion's den. Certain death. What lions do in lion's den is eat people thrown in there. And he came out the other side unscathed, not a scratch. Some people put out the fire, the power of fire. Who's that? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Contemporaries of Daniel. Bow down and worship this other God. Stop following the Lord. Give up. If you don't, I'm going to throw you into the fiery furnace. They go into a fiery furnace. You know what a fiery furnace is meant to do? Burn you alive. They came out the other side not a hair singed. Now these are important, important stories. 
Because they remind us that you and I most likely we're not going to be threatened with a fiery furnace. But there are followers of Jesus right now that are threatened really closely right now around the world with their lives for following Jesus. So it still happens today. But you and I are going to encounter circumstances and times in our lives when we are overwhelmed and we can't see our way through. We're going to face impossible circumstances where it seems like there is no way I can get through this. One of the reasons why we're looking at this passage right now is that there's even been a shift in conversation. I don't know if you've noticed it. We used to talk a lot about being really busy. You know what we say now? There's a lot going on. You know what we mean by that? I'm overwhelmed. And I don't know how I'm going to do it all. And there's Bible, there's a part of our cloud of witnesses that's there, that's watching us run. They give witness as well. They're not just watching us. They're teaching us. Don't turn away from God. Don't leave God. Keep running. Why? Because even though it seems impossible for you right now, God will show you a way through. That's part of the witnesses. My wife and I have left counseling appointments with other couples where we get out into the car and after they told us of what was going on in their lives, we get out in the car and I just look at my wife and I say, I have no idea how this marriage is going to survive. None whatsoever. We just weep. And then you watch God unbelievable grace and kindness and gentleness and power help a husband and wife take small steps of sacrificial love toward one another. One day turns into a week, turns into a month, and that marriage is transformed. God can do miraculous things in impossible circumstances. That's one of the reasons why we trust him. But there's another list that makes up our cloud of witnesses that's watching us and testifies of God's faithfulness. And this list is different and it's so important. It's a list that the Western church doesn't emphasize enough, I think. Like we talk in Faith Kids and Faith Littles and Awana of, of, of uh, Elijah and Elisha and Daniel and David and conquering and impossible odds. America loves impossible odds stories. But there are also stories where the miracle isn't that God delivered. It's that he helped people walk through their worst nightmare. Verse 35, there's a shift. Some, that is some sons of some mothers, were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and 
flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and coats and destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves. This is an important part of the cloud of witnesses in front of us because there will be times in your life when you will not come out the other side unscathed. But God will walk with you through the thing that you were hoping would never happen to you. See, for every Peter that goes into jail in the book of Acts and is released by an angel, man, that's an awesome story. There's a John the Baptist that goes into jail that loses his head. There's a James who goes into jail and is executed. For every Corey Tenboom, one of my personal heroes, for every Corey Tenboom who makes it through Ravensbrook, a Nazi death camp, and comes out the other side to talk about the power of forgiveness and the depth of the love of Jesus, no matter what the circumstance, there's her sister and her father, Betsy and Casper, who didn't make it through. And we need those stories because they show us that God is with us even when the nightmares happen, even when they take place. This some were tortured. There's this, again, there's this shift that happens in verse 35. And what's talked about there is, uh, first part of verse 35 is that mothers received back their dead from resurrection. That's talking about um, the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. And there were widows who had sons who died. And Elijah prayed and Elisha prayed. And those sons were brought back to life. But then there were others, other women, whose their sons were tortured and did not come back to life. That's talking about what happened in what we call the intertestamental period. It's the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. See, there was a king named Antiochus Epiphanes, Syrian king. That's your phrase for the day. Antiochus Epiphanes. And he, wanted, he was oppressive to the Jewish people. And he was brutal and he was massively, significantly, horrifically perverse. And he loved to torture Jewish people to try to get them to deny the Lord. And there's one story in the book of Maccabees, Maccabees, 2 Maccabees chapter 7, that you can read about it. I'm not going to get into all the gory details, but you need to know that if you read it, it's worse than the ending scenes of Braveheart and William Wallace. There's this famous story of a mother who had seven sons and all seven sons were tortured one after another. And each son was tortured in the sight of the next brother who was going to undergo that torture. So they knew what was coming. And each one, before they started the torture, said, are you sure you don't want to deny the Lord? And God didn't do anything miraculous to save them from that. He walked with them through it. What happened even more was the mother would speak to her sons this way. I don't know how your life began in my womb, she would say. I was not the one that gave you life and breath and put you together, each part of you in your, your body and mine. It was God who did it. 
God who created the universe, the human race, and all that exists, and he is merciful, and he will give you back life and breath again. Don't you dare flinch. This is important for two reasons. One, what happens at times is if we only have a story about miraculous intervention of Jesus in impossible circumstances, that when he does not do that in your life, we're tempted to say, God must not care about my life. There's so many people that have walked away from the Lord because they say something like this. Honestly, say something like this. I'm glad that Jesus works for you, but he didn't work for me. I tried him. I started to follow him and my life fell apart. Could it be, maybe that's you here today and you're starting to work your way back to whether or not Jesus is true. Could it be that actually you really didn't have faith in Jesus at that time when you walked away? or when you started and then walked away, but you had faith in an agenda for Jesus. That is, you were hoping that Jesus would make your life good. He'd put things back right. He would fix all your problems. And when you didn't do that, you walked away from him. But your faith wasn't fully in Jesus. It was in your agenda for Jesus. And one of the things that when God doesn't deliver in the way that we think he should, what we're confronted with is, am I trusting Jesus for my agenda for my life? Or am I trusting Jesus and his agenda for my life? It's one really important reason why there is this cloud of witnesses. There's another reason it's because they emphasize, it emphasizes the prize that Jesus actually promises us. A prize. These mothers who said these things to their sons believed something that we sort of tuck away and we don't talk about that much, but it's the ground, the very ground for all of the hope that we have. It's that Jesus rose from the dead and that you and I, we too, will rise again from the dead. Notice what the author says here about these mothers here in verse 35. It says, that they, their sons were tortured and they did not deny. Why? So that they might rise again to a better life. They might rise again to a better life. Some of your translations will say that they might experience a better resurrection. Well, better resurrection, what in the world does that mean? Well, if you contrast Elijah and Elisha and the miracles that they did where these sons came back to life or Lazarus who uh, was a best friend of Jesus and Lazarus comes out of the grave after four days of being in there because Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. Or um, the, the, uh, you've also got Jairus' daughter who comes back to life. They still had to die again. They were resuscitated. They weren't resurrected. I mean, poor Lazarus had to go through death twice. What a bummer. But these moms, what they were waiting for, and what they were looking for, which is the greatest hope, which is not simply that we could experience a miraculous deliverance in this life, but that after this life, we experience the very thing that Jesus experienced, which is we get our lives back. 
That is the great hope of the Christian life, that we get back what we've lost. Some of these sons, if you read the accounts, some of these sons were stretching out their arms and say, take my arm. God gave it to me, he'll give it back to me. See, the Bible teaches that when we die, we go to be with Jesus in a place called heaven. A real place, we can't see it, but they can see us. But that's not the final goal. The final goal is that you and I, when Jesus returns, we burst forth from the grave. The very body that you have right here that is decomposing and falling apart, if it's anything like mine, will be made new. The lungs that fill up with water someday and you die will breathe again. Breathe again. That's what Jesus came to secure for you and me. And if you and I ground our joy and our hope and our prize and we run our race looking for that, you and I can face anything that life can throw at us. That's why we have this witness. That's why we have it. Now, you might be sitting there going, man, this is like pie in the sky kind of stuff. Do you really believe in the resurrection of Jesus? Yes. And do I really believe that one day I will be raised from the dead, that everything, right, everything sad is going to come untrue for me? Yes. Staking my whole life on it. But this isn't pie in the sky, wishful thinking kind of thing. This is something that's hardwired into your heart. Do you know that? To want this. One of the reasons why I'm a Christian is because of the words of a man named C.S. Lewis who gave me this view of myself. He wrote this in Mere Christianity. Most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. I've got a great wife. I'm so grateful for her, and she's great. But she can only love me so much. I am made for a love that's bigger than her, and so are you. Partly because she's my wife. Leave her alone, okay? <laughs> You're made for a love that's bigger than anything in this world can ever give you. You long for that. And one of the things is that we keep suppressing it and we try to get it found in this life and it won't be found. C.S. Lewis goes on, he says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, please hear this, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe that we live in, that it's a fraud, it just simply means that maybe the delights and the joys that you and I experience in this life were never intended to satisfy the desires that we have in our heart, only simply to awaken them. Awaken them. Suggesting that there is a real thing. And if this is so, please hear this. If this is so, I must, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or be unthankful for the earthly blessings and good things that God gives me. And on the other hand, never mistake them for something else 
for which they are only a kind of a copy and echo, a foretaste of something that's coming. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death, he says. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others to do the same. Do you know that when you're living your life outside of these walls, you have the greatest opportunity to let the people around you know that you're living for another country where your desires will be fully satisfied and that we're left here until Jesus returns to keep running in such a way that we can help the other people around us awaken to the race that Jesus has set before them where he will satisfy middle school, high school, college students, you will be told that the greatest thing that you can do in your life is discover you and live true to you. That leads to hell. The greatest thing that you can do is pay attention to the longings in your heart for a deep satisfaction that this life will never get you and run to get the prize that awaits you when Jesus returns. That is success. Enjoy the gifts, pursue to live your life in a way that honors Jesus, but run to get the prize on the other side when Jesus returns. Now, a couple things here. One, if you're following Jesus, the call is to take all of our hopes and expectations of joy and delight, take all of our deepest hopes and longings and put that onto Jesus' return and to see that as the goal and to keep running and not turn aside and fall. Keep running. For some of us, for some of us, it might be that you're in a spot today that you want to know more about Jesus and you want to give your life to him and you want to start a race with him. Please come up right after the service and I would love to talk to you about how to follow Jesus. For some of you, you might be skeptical like me. And I love you already. You said they're like, is this really true? Like, really? Did Jesus really? I mean, okay, he died. Everybody dies. But did he really rise from the dead? How do you know, Tim? How do you know? If you're skeptical like me, it took me years to really get that into my head. We have an opportunity for you. It's called Christianity Explored. It's a seven-week course where we look at the founding documents, the historical records about Jesus. Who was he really? Who was he really? What did he really do? And can it really be proven historically? And what does that mean for me? We'll ask those questions and seek to answer those questions all over a delightful meal. Me and the team will be there starting up on August, or I mean on April 20th. All you need to do is just register and we've got childcare for you. It's almost like a date night but it's looking at some of the most important questions in life. And you can bring any of your questions and wrestle 
Is this really true? If it is, it changes everything. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, who cares what he thinks? But if he did, run to get him and to see him face to face. Lastly, God doesn't, hasn't just given us a cloud of witnesses, he's given us as well a champion. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated right now at the right hand of the throne of God. Two words here. We're going to come back later on and talk through this passage later on this year, but two words here I want you to pay attention to, that Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of our salvation. Founder. What that means is that he shows us how to run. He ran, he suffered, he died, and he rose again. And so if we give our allegiance to him in faith, if we belong to him, a relationship with him in faith, what happened to Jesus will happen to us. We go into the grave, we'll come out the other side. I don't know about you, but I don't know anybody who knows what it's like to be on the other side of death. Anybody who talks about this is what it's going to be like doesn't know except for the one who actually made it through the other side. And that's Jesus. And this is really important that he's our founder, the founder of our faith, because what that means is that Jesus will not let you go through anything in this life that he's not willing to go through first. Whatever difficulty, whatever trial, whatever hardship that he walks with you through until you see him face to face, he has in some ways endured as well, and he is perfectly able to help you walk through that with him. He's our founder. But he's also the perfecter. See, the prize of resurrection isn't dependent on how well we run. And one of the things I love about the list of the cloud of witnesses is if you look at the names and you know the stories, they're a mess. Just a mess. God started with prostitutes and made them faithful. David blew up his life. And there are cloud of witnesses. And what that tells us, that it's not about our perfection. It's not about how well we run the race. It's all about how well Jesus ran the race. He made it to the other side. Everything that we receive when Jesus returns, every good thing that we have right now, it's not because of how well we run. It's all because of his grace. All because of his grace. Because he lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death for us that we should have died. And he rose again so that you and I can too. And the reason why we get everything back is because he made it through the other side. In just a few moments, we're going to show you a video that we put together. Because we not only have a cloud of witnesses that have gone before us, but we have a cloud of witnesses here at Faith Community. And these are people who are running just a little bit farther ahead of most of us in following after Jesus. And we've got a word of encouragement from them to us to keep running because Jesus is worth it. But a couple weeks ago when I was told about this video and how we were setting it up to be shot in the studio here, is that you're going to see, um, you're going to see in, the, in the video, you're going to see pictures, or you're going to see people being interviewed, telling a little bit about their story, and then 
they're going to be sitting in a chair, and behind them are these pictures of people on the wall. And the people on the wall behind them are some of the heroes of the faith that are more modern. Corey Ten Boom, Elizabeth Elliot, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Frederick Douglass. People who are more current that have run the race ahead of us. And about a month ago, three weeks a month ago, I was facing into something where I had to run up a hill, and I hate running up hills. I had to run up a hill, if you get the metaphor. I was facing into something that's going to be really difficult. And Kevin and Ben told me about this, how they set up the studio, and there's a chair in there and these pictures on the wall. And I took my notebook, and I went and sat in the chair. I started to write out my prayer and what I was concerned about and just talk to God. And there's this amazing thing that just happened. As I could feel, weird, but I could feel Corey Ten Boom's eyes looking over my shoulder. Elizabeth Elliot looking over my shoulder. Charles Spurgeon, the bearded wonder, looking over my sp- shoulder. Saying, Tim, run. Run. Jesus is with you. What I want you to hear in this video of our current cloud of witnesses, no matter where we are, either join the race, start running, or keep running. The prize is worth it.